Hi, welcome to Cracked, for readers by readers, where we are cracking minds, hearts, spirits, and spines, one author at a time. I'm your host, Monique. The inspiration behind the podcast is twofold. First, it's an introduction to a diverse range of authors through their work. In each episode, readers and I explore anywhere between four to six novels by the same author, searching for themes and life lessons or influences from their work. Second, it's a chance to expand our minds, open our hearts, and let our spirits fly by exploring how these books and ideas help to broaden the way we move through our world and our individual realities. So I invite you to join us as we get cracked. So welcome to episode three of Cracked for Readers by Readers. You can find us on Instagram at cracked underscore for RBR. You can find us on Gmail and we're really happy and excited to hear from you at cracked for RBR at gmail.com. Today's author is one of those unexpected sneak attacks, strike of lightning type authors for me where I was wandering through the empty high school halls on the last day of class, happened to pass by the English classroom and saw the destroyed paperback books used by high school students. And this hurt my heart a little because anyone who knows me knows that I do not destroy books. I don't even like to see that middle crack in the spine, even on a paperback copy. Yes, I'm weird and that's okay. <laughs> um, and maybe there's a few of you out there who are weird like me. <laughs> However, I picked up this copy of this yellow book that looked like the front cover was going to fall off and I haven't looked back since. I kept reading this author's work gradually over time. And so I'm really excited to explore her in this uh, podcast today. And for those of you who are wondering what that book is, it was The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. I loved that book and read it twice over in quick succession. It was one of the few books that made the cut and joined me in university where I made the silly mistake that I'm sure others have made of loaning it to a friend, never to see it again. <laughs> Fortunately, another friend was kind enough to go ahead and replace it with a brand new copy, which only has one crease in it now. <laughs> so let's get to discussing Isabel Allende. Isabel Angelica Allende Yona is, was born in Lima, Peru. She is a Chilean author who has written numerous works uh, of which we will explore a few today. And by we, I mean my dearest friend and Matt buddy, Yvonne Link. So Yvonne and I, for those of you who are not yogis, would often put our mats next to each other in the yoga studio 
back in the day when we practiced in studios together. These days, we put our mats down virtually, and that's okay because it is a massive support. So I invited Yvonne to explore the works of Isabella Allende, and today, that's what we're going to discuss is what her experience was of being introduced to this author and what my experience has been of reading her over time. So we look forward to hearing from you. If you've ever read anything by Isabel Allende, or maybe after this podcast, you're inspired to pick up one of her books, we look forward to hearing about it. So let's get cracked. Hey, Yvonne. Hi, Monique. <laughs> so let's get started with Cracked. First off, I am so very thankful for you for being here today to discuss this author, but also for making sure I get on my mat on Fridays and make up my drills on Saturdays. Thank you for having me, and I'm happy to inspire you and help you get on your mat and do drills with you because it kicks my butt. <laughs> Thank you. So, Isabel Allende, why don't we start by covering actually a very important question for both of us before we dive into Isabel. Why do you read, first of all? And when you read, what do you normally go towards in terms of literature or books, etc.? Tell us a little bit. <laughs> I think I just read because I, I just enjoy reading. I enjoy reading um, different stories. I, I like, I typically don't read fictions. Like I typically read yoga books or something spiritual or something about religion or kind of like self-help books, you know, these sorts of things. So, um, when you asked me to read Isabel, Isabel Allende, I was curious for sure. I was like, okay, you know, like I've enjoyed, um, a lot of fictions that you had had recommended. So I was like, okay, I'll give, I'll give it a try. But yeah. Nice. So for me, I think reading is about developing that empathy muscle for me, primarily. I probably read more fiction than nonfiction, but there's certainly a balance of both over the course of a year. I read the nonfiction because, like you, it could be spiritual, self-help, religious. Uh, admittedly, sometimes I have a deep interest in military history, so sometimes my reading falls into that realm. Uh, there are certain wars that I find more interesting than others, and so I will dive deeply into what I consider to be the various axes of war, so whether that's the home front or a different front of the war, the soldier's perspective, and trying to get all sides of the images of what happened during that conflict. I do the same thing with fiction. I could not honestly say that there is one type of fiction that I'm drawn to. I have friends who will describe me as a democratic reader. And by that, I think they mean that I will read almost everything in that I read across genres. I will read horror, I will read fantasy, I enjoy science fiction, 
it, I really couldn't tell you what it is that makes me pick up a book. But what I recognize is that for a lot of us, there is a time and a place where a book makes sense for us to read. And trying to read a book outside of that time and place renders the experience a little less than it could be. Um, I experienced this with The Awakening by Kate Chopin, which I read twice. I read it out of curiosity before school, and then it was assigned reading in high school. And the second time I enjoyed the book a great deal better because there was someone there who was able to explain some of the symbolism that I'd missed the first time around. So I think it's important to always give a book a chance and recognize that sometimes we're reading literature outside of our correct time and space. So yeah, I, I tend to read a diversity of novels and that's part of the inspiration behind why we're sitting here today recording this conversation. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I've read uh, the Bhagavad Gita actually is one for me that I read that the first time and it was during uh, my yoga teacher's training. And, you know, it was like so early on in my yogic journey that I was like, I was reading it, but it didn't really resonate yet. You know, like there was just, something that I couldn't quite pick up in it. And then I think it was just last year or something. It's been sitting on my shelf. I've been meaning to reread it. And then I just reread it. And I was like, oh, you know, that feeling where you're like, yes, I'm ready to receive this book. And it was just such a like beautiful masterpiece. Yeah, I love it. And I know we're not really talking about the Gita today, yeah, but I have read that one twice over. And no, I think it's a brilliant example. And so it was a great one to go back to. And I think that speaks to the, the power of literature to help us find those answers at those moments when we, when we feel lost in our lives. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so nice. that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> so question for you. Mm -hmm. tell, us, tell me a little bit about your experience of reading Allende because in this case, it was almost like a high school assignment, mm -hmm. almost, because I didn't tell you which book to read. <laughs> I simply said, here's the author, pick some books, explore. Yeah, um, okay, so the books that I read, I started with The Japanese Lover, and then I read, or I audiobooked um, The Long Petal of the Sea, and then I read, and I kind of read and half audiobooked uh, Maya's notebook. And I would say that my experience with her books is I really enjoyed them, and I I'm not I'm not one for history um, <laughs> at all, to be honest. Um, it's it's not the type of book that I would ever decide to pick up, but I really enjoyed it because. Um, it really gave us an opportunity to examine how these historical events affected the human lives during that era. And I think as we're living through COVID, I just thought about that, like how this is affecting our lives and how this is going to affect the generation of children that are growing up having to deal with this during the most critical times 
of, of their lives. And I also really loved her ability to really craft like a positive lesson about like strength and, and human like resilience through those tough times, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I'd say that was my experience like on the whole of Oprah. Oh, I love that. And I would love for you to tell me more about the the books in relation to COVID in relation to children, because I know you had an experience early on in lockdown because you are a mother and in raising your child, um, trying to find that balance between, oh, you're not supposed to touch that or you shouldn't run up to this person, but not wanting to pull that piece of that person away from them. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was tough for me because I mean, especially at the beginning of COVID, I don't think any of us thought that it would last this long, right? Like, I mean, I'd probably be sitting in your living with living room with you in Calgary if yes. this wasn't the case, right? So I think initially, like, I kind of, I kind of like just put it at the back of my head. Like, obviously, I was aware of it and I tried to do what we could, but I didn't want my son to have to wear a mask or to not see people that were critical in his life. Like, I wanted to try and shelter him from all of the bad in it so that it didn't truly affect him right so I like I would see children who would see other people and just run away and I didn't want to do that to my two-year-old now three-year-old yeah so it was it was tough to find that balance but I think we've done a really good job of managing that so that he isn't you know afraid of people (laughs) yeah just afraid of people and I agree because I remember thinking about that when you mentioned it and it is inspiring then in the context of Allende to look Mm. at that, how, because I mean, it almost seems mild in comparison to what some of her characters go through, but they then have this ability to find a way to love and continue to love and get hurt and find love and love again, Um, which was challenging. So for me, I did describe a little bit of my experience of reading Allende in high school, and I have since read so much of her work. I have read The House of the Spirits. I went years ago um, and reread part of it for this. I have read Ava Luna and the stories of Ava Luna, um, Daughter of Fortune and Portrait in Sepia. And recently, in particular for today, I actually read some of the same ones you did. I read Maya's Notebook, uh, The Japanese Lover, which I had not read before. I reread or partially, mostly audiobooked um, The Island Beneath the Sea because I'd read it before and I thought audio would be sufficient in this case. I partially audioed and then partially read House of the Spirit. So that definitely changed the experience a bit. And I loved, your text the other night when you're like, audiobook makes it hard to capture quotes. Totally. It's like impossible. <laughs> yes. I have tried to find ways around it because sometimes you're listening and the quote still strikes you. And so what I will do is I will often either go back and I'll hit my bookmark three times so that mm-hmm. I have three times the same percentage points or bookmarks. I know there's a quote there. Or I will simply re-listen to it and write it down at that moment, which doesn't always work out. So one of the challenges, I suppose, of audiobook. Totally. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it has that benefit that you can do all of the things you need to do while still reading. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a nice thing. You can audiobook and drive, right? But that's where it's hard to bookmark. I'm, you know, trying to drive and <laughs> not be dangerous. <laughs> exactly. It's like, it would be nice if there was some way that you could speak to the audio recording and say tag or dog ear so that it captures that bookmark for you. Like you said, like while you're driving, because that's often what I'm doing when I'm listening to an audiobook. So I guess we can discuss the books a little bit in order. Um, but I'd like to start with the one I didn't read, which was Long Petal of the Sea. Tell us a little bit about that one and yeah. what it brought to mind to for you, how you felt about it. So it's set in Spain during the Civil War um, when the fascists overtook, overthrew the government and hundreds of thousands were forced, hundreds of thousands of, of, of Spanish people were forced to flee. Um, again, there's, there's a love story with a lady named Rose. Rose Roser, and she's taken in by the parents of two brothers. Um, yeah, I don't know how, how much into detail I should go. Okay. You can tell more. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So she falls in love. She falls in love with one of the brothers, who's a militia man. So he gets he goes away to war, and um, kind of as the story unfolds. Um, she ends up marrying her lover's brother, who is a doctor, so that they can they can escape and leave to immigrate to Chile, and so they board the um, the SS Winnipeg SS Winnipeg rescue ship, um, which is actually a really interesting story too. I was kind of doing a little bit of research on it, and so. The day that the Winnipeg rescue ship arrived in Chile was the day that the World War II started. So had they not gotten, yeah, so it was like I think 2,200 people that were, were were rescued on this ship or that were taken to Chile. And so had they not been able to board that ship, then they likely would have died. Um, as many people did during World War II, right? So, so it was interesting. Like, so yeah, so she ends up marrying the brother so that they can go to Chile. And so it's kind of like, I felt that it was a story of like displacement. Like they're continuously being taken from their home and restarting and having to like restart their lives. Um, yeah, it was a little slow starting for me. Like it kind of took me a little while to get into it. But then once... Once you kind of see, I think for me, I, I love a love story. I mean, who doesn't love a love story, right? So once that, the love story starts like unfolding and it's a very, you know, more so like a brother and sister sort of love story, right? And they kind of each fall in love or have affairs with other people, but they have this understanding that they're married, but they can kind of do whatever they want. They're married out of more like, a, you know, a business kind of friendship sort of relationship and they can each have their own separate love lives sort of thing, but they don't talk about it. So it's interesting because like I had mentioned to you that in all the books that I had read, there was some, 
some form of infidelity, right? So that's kind of, so I really enjoyed this book. At the same time, it was hard for me to, you know, hear about all this infidelity. Like it didn't go into like a ton of detail, which was nice, but there was, you know, an underlying feel of infidelity, I think, in the book. The one that I really liked about this book was that I felt that it kind of came to like a complete circle. Like, I don't want to give too much away, but I, I felt that kind of theme in all of her books, right? There was a theme of kind of, you know, war times, historical sort of war times, some mystery, a bunch of tragedy, <laughs> and always a love story in there. That is her mix, I think. Her yeah. mix is always, there's a love story, there's a conflict of some sort, um, and there's, and the main character, often women, often very, yeah. as you said earlier, strong, and there's a resiliency to mm -hmm. not only the female characters, but also at times the male characters, as we see in the Japanese lover, that they're able to move past these difficult moments, or Popo in Maya's notebook. <laughs> where they do, so there's that capturing of that within the human spirit, which I think is what continually drew me to her work. Yeah. So, I don't know, I love that. So I am actually really curious to read that one. I really enjoyed it. Like I first read Japanese Lover and, and that thing for me was a little bit slow in the beginning. And then kind of once you find out about the Japanese Lover and you find out more about it, so I guess we're gonna discuss this one after, but you find out more about other characters, um, then it got, it started to build up for me. So that's kind of what I noticed in her books too, that it was a little like slow starting. And then I, so yeah, then I really liked the Japanese lover, but after I finished this one, I was like, Oh, I actually like that more than the Japanese lover. Yeah. Really? The way Why? it just ties it all up in the end, it was just like, okay, I read this quote. It wasn't from the book, but I just, I read this and it said, um, a love story which reminds us, as a binding love story always does, that grace takes many forms, yet its core is not fate, but truth. And that's what it is in the end. Like the truth comes out and you're like, oh. you know, like kind of now everyone's now old, like a lot of these characters are dying or have died. And then there's like this big truth that comes out in the end and you're just like, I felt so like relieved, so like, just like so much love. Like it was just like, oh, like that was just a beautiful ending. There's a completion to it, I think. There's mm -hmm. a, and we can discuss the Japanese lover now because so curious with the Japanese lover, I realized halfway through the book that I'd read it before. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I have read this book. So I found it curious that, that like you said, the Japanese lover was challenging for me in the, probably the same way it was for you in that it was a slow start. And I thought I'm not used to that with her work because of some of the others that I've read where the mystery aspect of it draws you in right away. And you're curious to know how, become, or you become curious to know how all the characters fit together and what their journey is going to be. But I love that you said about the recognizing that oftentimes near the end, some of these main characters, they've lived their lives and you've been on this journey with them through their entire lives. And there's a truth that comes out of it and a strength that comes out of it that when you get to the end, there's like this really beautiful completion that mm. does not exist 
in quite the same forefront in the Japanese Lover or in Maya's notebook as it does mm -hmm. in some of her other work. <laughs> because in the Japanese Lover, she acknowledges that there are other people there who form, who are interacting and crossing space and sharing space with these main characters. And the main characters aren't always white either. They, she really does write to a diversity. So I think that's something that I find particularly unique about her work in comparison to many others that I've read. Mm, interesting, yeah. yeah. So going back to the Japanese lover, we have Alma and then there's her caretaker who she sort of hires to mm -hmm. help her out. And that actually even she has a, her own story of pain and difficulty that is, is heartbreaking. To learn. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally heartbreaking. And yeah. I liked how I liked how her story came out quite far along in the book. Like there was a lot going on with Alma and the Japanese lover and, and that that whole story. And and Nathan with her cousin, that when everything comes out with Irina, Irina, Irina. It's Irina, like, yeah. Oh yeah, it's like there's another layer of this book, right? Yes. Yeah. And for me, I felt like the Japanese lover and Maya's notebook were a moment when Isabel begins to explore not necessarily a war conflict kind of trauma, but either a strangely self-inflicted trauma or um, a trauma brought on by a different sort of displacement. Yes. in the case of Irina, because Irina is displaced from Eastern Europe and to Texas and then has this very interesting, is interesting because for me reading her experience of the abuse that she suffered, and I mean, abuse seems like a very light word to use to express what occurred with Irina, that she was able to experience that at a young age comes into California and it very much shapes who she was so much so that Nathan certainly has hurdles and obstacles to climb over in order to help her to help her or support her and be there for her as she very slowly and he patiently waits for her to come to a point where she can be in a position of trust, like deep trust with him. So it was Seth. Seth Instagram. Seth, Seth, sorry. Seth right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. But yeah, I totally agree. Like, for me, it kind of felt like um, Alma's relationship with Nathan was similar to yeah. Irina's and Seth's. Like, it was almost like the husband was just very patient, very loving, and just supportive for their wife so yes. that they could find their place through yeah. the tragedy and everything do you think that's because that's something that we as women look for i mean i know for me if i'm looking mm -hmm. for a partner i'm definitely looking for someone who can be supportive of who i might wish to be or become as a human being and that part of me is looking to be supportive of them and who they wish to become as a human being as a centrality of that relationship yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that 
that adds the strength to the relationships as you were discussing between, yeah. I've got it, Irina and Seth and Nathan and Alma. Yeah. And the yeah. Nathan and Alma relationship is actually quite interesting too, especially in light of looking at the long petal of the sea. Because there you have a case where she is marrying out of necessity. And in some ways, though we're not going to go into exactly why, Nathan and Alma certainly are doing the same thing. Yeah, totally. Right. I wanted to read one quote from um, the, the, the very last letter that Ishmi sends. I wanted to read it because I just thought it was so beautiful. So it says, how exuberant and boisterous the universe is, Alma. It turns and turns, and the only constant is everything changes. He says, it is a mystery we can only appreciate out of stillness. And I loved how he was such, he was into meditation and just lived like in the present moment. So then he goes on to say, I'm living through a very interesting stage. My spirit contemplates the changes in my body with fascination but this contemplation is not from a distance, but from within. My spirit and my body are together in this process. Yesterday you told me how you missed our youthful illusion of immortality. Not me. I take pleasure in my reality of being a mature man, or should I say, an old one. If I were going to die in the next three days, what would I do during that time? Nothing. I would empty myself of everything but love. Oh, good one. Right? It feels, right? Like, that's yes. just like, like, like anytime I read that, it just tingles like all through my body. I love that. And that's mm -hmm. one of those moments because his letters are so central to the story of the Japanese lover. In many ways, they're why the book has that title. And you're right, because Ishimi, between his father and their entire upbringing of their family, there is, I will acknowledge, seemingly an Orientalist um, lens on their family. He's mm -hmm. always described as being reserved, even as they describe his family and their time in the internment camp. Yes. It's they're reserved and they're stoic, et cetera. And they're the typical words that we hear to describe people who are of the, um, the Orient in that time period, which I was very conscious of as I was reading the book, but I still loved the, not only his character, but the way in which not, there was also a reverence for ceremony and for family at the same time, maybe it was because of their career of being gardeners. There was mm -hmm. this constant attunement to nature yes. and the way nature functions. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I, I found that, um, that kind of, that element of nature and connectedness and kind of being one or finding a meditative quality in that, I found that carried into my notebook as well. When she's looking Tell for, me. when she's looking for her cocoa, what, Popo? Yeah, Popo. Right? God, I, so Popo, I wanted her would, Popo. I know, right? And when <laughs> she would see him was when she was either in, you know, serious distress and she needed saving or she was in nature and just was able to be one with nature. I think there was this really beautiful quote from that book too that her, her grandmother 
her grandmother got into meditation and she said that the reason that she did was that she could, when she could feel grounded and could kind of be one with nature was when she saw Popo or was oh able to feel him. I love that. So we should probably go into Maya's notebook and yeah. give them this background of why we want a Popo too. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> so I, so Maya's notebook, I struggled with, and I also loved it. So in this case, the trauma is the trauma experienced by her father, her grandfather, not Popo, but her biological grandfather under, I believe, the Pinochet regime. There's also the trauma experienced by her Popo, who is a black man, a black American man, I believe, and a renowned professor at one of the uh, top universities of his experience simply of everyday life that does fact feature in the book. And then you have the displacement, especially of her father and her grandmother from Chile to Canada through to the States, finally settling in California. And then the one that I struggled with was Maya's trauma. I didn't understand, I didn't quite understand losing a grandfather in that way and then the downward spiral that she took in terms of drugs it was challenging for me to comprehend that level of disconnect because her grandmother was still there and i even though they were not as close i still felt as though you still have the spare tire in a way yeah and her grandparents like this book I, I loved this book. This book, I think, brought up the most feels for me, for sure. Um, and a lot of it is because I could get emotional. Just That's okay. <laughs> but That's okay. <laughs> a lot of it is because, you know, being a parent and you know how much love and effort I, I pour into me. And, like, when I was a stay-at-home mom for three years, especially, like, every ounce of my energy went into ensuring that he knew that he was loved. He knew that we are here for him because I feel like it's so easy for children or adolescents to just quickly go down the wrong path. And for myself, like, you know, my, I had good parents. Like, I think I always struggled with my relationship with my mom until I had my son, but I had good supportive parents and I was one of those kids like I so that's why this book really resonated with me like in high school I started using drugs and like you know not drugs like I mean sure started with alcohol and weed which you know is not that bad but then I got into the bad crowd and then I was using ecstasy and crystal meth and cocaine and like and then just having, you know, no self-esteem, no self-love. And so feeling like I needed a man to provide that to me, right? So like reading this book, I felt like, you know, life is a lot about <clears throat> chances. It's a lot about our decisions. And had I made worse decisions, I mean, clearly I <laughs> made poor decisions, but had I made worse decisions, and not turn my life around, I could have been in that sort of situation. 
right? Oh, so, wow. yeah. So being a parent, you're just constantly and knowing what I've been through, it's like you're constantly trying to find that balance of not being like a helicopter parent, but ensuring that your kid can can lean on you and won't go down that path. But there's nothing you can do to prevent it, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. so many questions. This, I, so yeah. I love this because this actually helps me to understand Maya's predicament a bit better. But also yeah. in terms of where you were, can you tell us, tell me a bit about how you, because it doesn't sound like you went as far down the road as Maya did. <laughs> like she no. ran away from home and then ran away from rehab. And really, it's, all, it's truly a miracle that she survived. Uh, she survives in the way that she does. So twofold, wanting to know more about your experience and why you didn't end up going quite as far down. Like what was it that stopped you? And mm. on the parenting side, there is that aspect, you know, being a daughter myself of, yes, there's your parents who love you and are there for you to lean on, but it's similar to the idea of our yoga practice. It's great when the teacher is there to give you the adjustment and help you bind your hands in whichever absurd position. But when they're not there, how can they stand by your mat without engaging and teach you to achieve that bind yourself? Teach you in this case to achieve that love of self, that self-love independent of them. <laughs> yeah. So I guess first what you know brought me out of it, which so I didn't go down such a horrible spiral. It was in high school, so that was when I was, you know, using those hard drugs. A friend just said to me, I'm worried about you. And I was kind of like, why are you worried about me? Like, there's nothing to be worried about. But then I realized, like, oh, yeah, like, this isn't good, you know? So I was able to kind of, you know, snap out of it. And I think, you know, so another thing, I've also experienced eating disorders, and that's also in the book too, right? So I, you know, like, you know, it just brought up so many feels for me. So with like drugs or alcohol, anything like that, it's a lot easier because food you actually need to eat to survive. So that is, you know, a constant battle sort of thing. Whereas like with drugs, for some reason for me, it was easy to just be like, okay, this clearly does not serve me. This needs to be out of my life. So, I mean, now I don't touch anything because it's just, I know that that doesn't serve me. You know, even with drinking, like, so as I got into, like, my 20s was when I was drinking a lot. So it was kind of like I replaced, you know, an addiction with a different addiction sort of thing, right? So with drinking, it was like, you know, I'd, you know, be, like, blackout drunk sort of thing. So then I realized this doesn't serve me, right? So I was able, so I think it was easy for me to kind of, like, stop those things because I just recognized that it didn't serve me. Anymore. It wasn't who you wanted to right? be, was it? Yeah, exactly. Right? And I think finding my husband, too, who's just supported me unconditionally through everything um, in kind of any dream or any goal I want has also been, I mean, he didn't, wasn't through the bad times either. So, but having him is just such a solid, you know, foundation. Um, what was your question about kids? Sorry about the teaching them to love themselves because there's an aspect of them leaning on yeah. you, but how then do you foster that understanding within your son that not only do you love him as his parent, 
but it's essential that he loves himself and that he understands how yeah. he loves himself. Because I, I have my answers for that in some of the things I see, because I see the way that energy that you poured into him on those days where he decides to make an appearance in your yoga room, where he'll climb all over you and it's, I love you, mommy. I'm like, that is adorable. <laughs> I think that for me, that starts with loving myself. To be honest, I think being a parent, I think that you need to lead by example, right? And had I had a child 10 years earlier or five years earlier, I wouldn't have been in the position that I am now. Like now I can say that I love myself. I have self-respect. I mean, that's probably why I, I enjoy reading, you know, spiritual books or self-help books because I can, I love psychology. I love to learn about, you know, the human experience. Um, so I think I was able to relate a lot of that and find a lot of self-love and self-respect and also through the yoga. So I think for me, because I don't know the answer to that question, I think that that's where you start for me anyways. And see, that would have been my answer to the question as well, is that I feel as though, or hopefully in seeing and in communicating to him why it is that you take that time out for yourself in the morning that he then understands that by filling your vessel you're better able to help him fill his and so hopefully over time he'll learn to choose those things that allow him to be the person and the best version of himself that he can be and sometimes it's a matter of simply fostering and identifying those parts of him that are already there and nurturing that and nurturing that in terms of saying, you know what, this is the part I love about you. And maybe it's even in terms, as you said, of leading by example of speaking to your husband in those ways of saying, Mm -hmm. you know what, I'm nurturing this in you because I absolutely love that this is who you are and what you do and what you choose, who you choose to be. Yeah. 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 That's very beautifully said. Yeah. Thank you. So Maya's notebook that actually, immensely helps me to appreciate that book more because I did struggle. (laughs) I, so I like most women have been through the eating disorder part. I always favored anorexia over bulimia. There was no way anybody was going to convince me that, you know, regurgitating food was going to be my way. I just, I can't handle it. So I would rather not eat at all. And that was the path that I often chose when I dealt with my, Yeah, I suppose you would say it was disordered eating um, when I was younger. And it was very easy for me to go days of, in some ways you could call it fasting because I'm choosing not to eat, but it's also disordered for the reasons that you're choosing not to eat. And so that part was understandable to me. It was the drugs and the alcohol part that I thought, how can you dislike yourself so much? I understand that... Popo is no longer here as that rock, but I had hoped that she respected his love of her enough to then maybe treat herself better. But then I think part of it is that I'm forgetting that she was quite young. She was 15, uh, somewhere between 15 and 18 during this time. I think she's 19 in the book. She turns 20 in the end. But for me, I thought... 
I thought that it kind of stemmed more from her initial displacement with her parents. Like, yes, her grandparents gave her so much love, but her mom dropped her off, right? And kind of, she was just kind of abandoned by her real parents. And I think, I think that can do something to you. Yeah, I think that you're right. That's the part that I forgot is that sure there was that relationship between her mother and her father who I don't recall if they actually bothered to get married or not, but she would go around thinking she was the Laplander or the Laplander. I think it was because her mom was Finnish. Wasn't she Finnish or somewhere in the Scandinavian countries in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Was her mom. Yeah. Yeah. But either she was Scandinavian. Anyway, her mom, you're right, dropped her off on her father's doorstep. And because of her father's work, he then dropped her off on his mother's doorstep. So I think you're right that the the lack of self-love, despite, you're right, how much her grandparents gave her, was already in some ways trying to offset that massive deficit from her parents of not feeling wanted. Because her Mm -hmm. grandparents tried to take her to visit her biological mom and that didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. And not through any real fault of her mother. It was just by that time, it was too late really to establish a relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, Yeah. Maya's notebook certainly had some twists and turns and there's definitely aspects of self-love and resiliency in that as well, because Maya does come through a very hard journey that, I say is in some ways self-inflicted, but when we look at the mental and emotional trauma, which I always feel like that's the harder trauma to address and heal from in some ways, and it takes more time, that it wasn't self-inflicted. It was in some ways a trauma that started when her father was born. Because if you remember her father in some ways didn't know his father. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He had someone that he thought was his father who he also lost. And so I don't think in any way he really knew how to be a parent. And his mother then had to fill in for the both of them in the best way that she knew how. But again, yeah. So Popo, I think in some ways, oh my God, who doesn't want a grandfather like this, (laughs) was father to both Maya and her father. Yeah, he was like the connection for them all, right? Yeah. Completely. Oh, yeah. yeah, You know what? That's giving me some feels. Yeah, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. There was a quote in this book that I really liked. The other thing I really liked about this book was it was like reading her diary, right? And yeah, I mean, so this was one one quote from the book. And I think she's talking about like her her writing and what she was going to write about in all these notebooks. But she said, I realized that in writing happiness is useless without suffering. There is no story. I like that. I like that a lot because I feel like we're so drawn to tragedy and suffering, right? Like nobody really wants to watch a movie or read a book. That's all just happy the whole way, right? Like you need some grit. You need some, tragedy to make a story like really good and fall in love with those characters absolutely so 
when you said that, that reminds me immediately of Denzel Washington's speech, I think from a couple of years ago, where he says the enemy of progress is ease. And I think in some ways the enemy of happiness is the absence of suffering. Yeah. Because it's in some ways easier to recognize that we're in a good moment and to have gratitude when you've been through a space where you're like, Ooh, that was very uncomfortable. That was mm -hmm. very challenging or that was very difficult. And when you come to the other side and learn that lesson of what sort of energy you need, it's stronger. It's like it sets in concrete a bit better than had you not had those previous experiences. Yeah. Or maybe it increases your commitment to live in that way. For sure. I don't think you know happiness if you haven't suffered, right? Right. Yeah. And I felt like in this book, like, I mean, there were a few love stories throughout it with, you know, the grandma and Popo and, and her love story with her, her Popo, the relationship of that love. But for me, it felt like, and maybe it was because yeah, I'm reading it through my lens, it felt like a love story of herself. Completely. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's why I found it challenging. Because like everyone, we all have these moments where we're not conscious or acknowledging of our love for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But there are also all of these moments where I suppose for me, in the example of my mother, I was always very conscious of the need to have that self-love and to care about that time, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so there's no, I've never had an expectation of finding a love that I couldn't give myself outside of myself. Mm -hmm. And that's probably why I found it challenging to read this book and understand it because I feel like the central love story is Maya's love of self. Yeah. That's the one that I was most focused on. Right. Well, you're lucky. Like that's, I mean, to be able to know, to be able to love yourself, like from the beginning. Um, yeah, that's it. I think women especially just struggle with that in, in our society. And it's an ebb and flow. Like, there are some days where yeah. it's challenging. You completely forget to love yourself, yeah. but at least, I don't know, for me, there's always been this consciousness that that's the, my central love story in my life is yeah. to love myself. And of course there will be years, like years at a time where I will forget like anyone else, but it, you come back to those lessons as you learn them. And it, I think it's just differing experiences moving through life as well. And so it's this magic of yeah. the being conscious to how much love there is in this world. And I feel like Isabel certainly highlights that, that despite some of these internment camps and civil wars and Pinochet regimes in Chile that, or lack of self-love and going down the path of absolute, undeniable, lost drug abuse, that there is still an aspect, there's still a story of love that unfolds. There is still a part of Maya that's trying to love herself. She wants yeah. to, you know that she wants to. <laughs> So I think we have one more book to cover. It's probably going to be brief. So it's uh, Island Beneath the Sea. Mm. So in this one, 
I would suggest that there is infidelity, you're right. However, because of the circumstances and the setting, it's challenging for me to label it as your traditional or our traditional ideas of infidel infidelity. Because Island Beneath the Sea is the story of Zarite or Tete, who is a mulatta slave on a plantation in what at the time is called San Domingue. So again, going into this historical factor where the Japanese lover and in Maya's notebook, she's in the present looking back at a traumatic history. In Island Beneath the Sea and in the House of the Spirit, she is in the present of the, and the long petal of the sea, she's in the present of the trauma. And so mm -hmm. it's the past looking forward. Um, okay. So Zarite is a slave or she becomes a slave who's trained to become a house um, girl by a courtesan. That she's essentially what's interesting in Island Beneath the Sea is that you have all of the scope and the nomenclature of diluted blood, shall we say, because it travels and it goes from San Domingue, which is present day Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, where even if you go there today, there is a language around um, diluted blood per se. So you have someone who is white and you have someone who is black, but then you go down this bizarre scaling, I think that was conceived of by the Spanish at the time of having mulatas and sambos and quadroons and on and on and on that I can't remember any of the others in terms of whether their blood was half or a quarter or an eighth or whichever black. Hmm. Um, and they journey from San Domingue to Cuba to Louisiana, where a lot of this language around color um, continues. In Louisiana, it's very mm -hmm. common. It's hard to be in the French Quarter any part and not hear of quadroons. And in order to be a quadroon, you had to be a certain level of mixture, I suppose, of white and black. So Zarite is the slave of, um, she is the slave of Toulouse Valmorin. Valmorin, that's all I need to, to remember. And in that relationship with uh, Toulouse, she, it's very clear that she does not like him. She has never liked him. He rapes her continuously so that she ends up bearing for him first a boy and then a girl. Yeah, two children by him. And she actually ends up having another child later with another man whom she's actually in love with. Mm. So it's this constant journey of survival. And the interesting thing is that the island beneath the sea that the book is titled for is mentioned a couple of times in the book itself. And it seems to be this idea that after you die, you rejoin all of your loved ones on this island beneath the sea. So you live in this space above the sea where you're suffering and you're in pain and you're separated often from, in her case, Toussaint Louverture, who is her lover, her first lover, who she heals and brings back to life, et cetera, in some ways after he's mortally wounded. And Toulouse is that other side of things. He's her owner who in his own in his own 
bizarre ways seems to think that she owes him something. He seems to think that Zarite will always be there to take care of him like she's part of the family, never recognizing that she's only there, only submitting to him in these moments of rape because in those moments she has no other choice. But she's really not there. She's never his. She would never choose to be part of his family. And it's fascinating. So the historical fascination within this story is not only the story of slavery, but what many people are not aware of is that in 17, I think it was 1775, the Haitian slaves rebelled. They actually kicked France out of Haiti. It was a long, years-long rebellion, which they won. And side historical factor, they ended up paying reparations to France. And I've had this discussion with people from France and various others, and it's interesting to hear the disagreement on those reparations, but it's one of the only wars you'll ever find where the winner paid reparations of some sort and still did to the slave owners for losing their property, despite the fact that they kicked them out as a result of not wanting to be property. So it's very fascinating, convoluted, and bizarre history that belongs to Haiti. And a lot of those white slave owners in Saint-Domingue left and went either to Cuba or Louisiana. There was nothing scarier for a slave-owning class, particularly in Louisiana, where it was quite plentiful with a slave population, than to imagine that sort of uprising. And so, of course, they were going to do everything within their power to control the population. I, I still love... I read that book years ago. I listened to it this time on audiobook. So it made it challenging, as we talked about earlier, to pull out quotes. But it was still, there were so many moments in this book as she's writing about this um, mulatta and then her daughter, um, who they also refer to as a mulatta, though the technical term at that point would have been, I think, sambo and then quadroon. It's really weird to learn about the historical labeling because there's actually a separate chart for labeling the mixture of white with Indian because in a lot of those Caribbean countries you have Arawak Indians who were the original inhabitants who were oftentimes wiped out by the incoming white immigration and the same thing in Latin America in South America that you have a lot of native populations so they actually have a similar one with mestizo and God knows what else going down, labeling people based on how much um, mixture of blood with white they had within them. So, and so to, for her to write this story and to take that into account was incredibly um, enlightening and just fascinating how many levels of history and how much research it would have taken to put this particular story together. But one of my favorites and yeah. I suppose in the House of the Spirits, you do have a bit of infidelity as well. I mean, yeah. let's be honest, yeah. Isabella Allende is currently on her third marriage. I don't is know she? what happened. In, <laughs> yep, she has been married three times. She married recently in 2019, according yeah. to Wikipedia. Um, her son also is not on his first marriage. I think he's on his second, again, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> so there isn't this idea that ever within her work that it is you get married and you stay married to the same person forever it's yeah. uh it's fascinating and so 
it's we're getting near to time to close off but i do want to know we did talk a little bit about the audiobook versus reading the book and that experience and i know we talked about this in our first episode um ashley and i were discussing the the difficulties and the brilliances and the ways Mm. of experiencing the book etc i do like the slowness i feel like it's slower to experience the book when i'm reading it Mm -hmm. physically and i'm the one taking it in i also love the aspect of falling into a story even if the author is mispronouncing a few foreign words Mm. um when it's being read to me i still consider it reading it essentially because there we have to recognize that there are some people who are not able to physically read a book Mm -hmm. that's not within their purview so being able to listen to a book is another way of experiencing it yeah i totally agree i think that you're still experiencing the story right you're still so i still feel like it is reading the book um i haven't really before kind of the audiobooks that i've recently listened to I I love books like I truly love books I just love the look of them I love the feel of them I love for me too a lot of times I'll read something and I'm like okay wait what just happened like I need to go back and read it a few times you know or google okay what's that word mean or you know that this sort of thing so you don't quite have that freedom with an audiobook Um, but I do like the convenience of audiobooks for sure I did really like the um, narrator that read Maya's notebook. Um, I really like that. I thought that it added to the story. Um, I felt like her voice and just the way that she narrated the story really fit the personality of Maya. Um, I actually didn't really like the narrator for A Long Petal of the Sea. Oh, really? Yeah, so I I think maybe that's kind of why I struggled with it initially, too. I don't know what it was about the narrator, and it was kind of funny the way that he would... So he would change his voice for other characters. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was kind of like, oh, that's that's kind of a little bit weird. Um, Yeah. So Maya's notebook was narrated by Maria Cabezas, and I have to agree with you, her tone and the voice that she gave to Maya, because I also audiobooked this one, was I loved it. Yeah, I really, I struggled with it because I struggled with the book itself. Um, But I also, um, I also loved it because she sounded as young as she was and looked, because I think that was what confused me. She was 19 going on 20, but a lot of people would mistake her for 15 or 14 because she had such that waifish look mm-hmm. to her so yeah. i really enjoyed so long petal of the sea was narrated by nick kaistor and yeah. i believe someone else oh. it looks like there were a few narrators on that one <laughs> yeah Edo, eduardo ballerini the long petal mm-hmm. of the sea yeah so i i don't know i have definitely i will have a listen and see yeah. what he sounds like but None of the narrators on any of the audiobooks, whether it was The House of the Spirits or The Island Beneath the Sea, really were so awful that they made me want to shut it down. So yeah. I was able to finish it um, because I've definitely had the experience of a few narrators where I'm not even 5% and I think, nope, I'm reading this myself. <laughs> no thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, But I really enjoyed that experience of listening 
to those books. And I, like you, I still describe it eventually as reading. Yeah. So I feel like we've covered these books quite well yeah. in this period. Um, so just a few quick questions. Would you read more of her work, A, and B, what do you think you'd read next? And I'll answer after you. <laughs> okay. I think I would read more of, more of her work. I would read, I think, The House of the Spirits. Like, I think you had said that was the one that really, really drew you in. And I'm curious because I've, I've read really good reviews about it as well. So I think, and I think that's probably one I would really like to physically read and just take my time to kind of go through it and like really I, experience her. I do recommend reading that one. I, I really enjoyed the audio book as I was listening to it. I would slow it down. Esteban Trebua. I'm going to I'm having a moment. I can't speak Spanish and French at the same time. Um, he is a challenging character, but he's also incredibly fascinating in simply who he is as a person and knowing where he comes from. And it's a similar story you'll find to The Long Petal of the Sea, except in this case, he's marrying the sister of his love for different reasons, may, or maybe similar reasons, I'm not sure. Um, but the sister that he's marrying, Clara, is the most fascinating. And they made a film of this one with Meryl Streep that they set in Europe instead of Chile, which I've never seen. I don't have any great desire to see it because there's there are certain aspects in this book that I think render it a medium that should only be a book. It's not meant to be a film or a radio play or anything else. It's meant to be enjoyed as a book. And I, when I say that, I'm thinking of Zadie Smith. When she talks about writing certain books, she deliberately writes them so that they can only be books. And that's, I think, a literary choice. There may be someone who can creatively come up with a way to make it more than a book, to make it a film and or to base a film upon it. But the real magic of this one is that it's best enjoyed as a book. It's my beautiful cover. I love this one. And yeah, this is the story of the Tribua family in Chile before Pinochet's coup in 73 is quite a beautiful experience as well as the magic and the spirits and of course, Clara's clairvoyance um, mm -hmm. that make it a truly enjoyable read. And it's very different to read her older work, whether it's The House mm -hmm. of the Spirits, um, Island Beneath the Sea, Portrait in Sepia, or um, Daughter of Fortune, than to read her more recent work, like Long Petal of the Sea and, um, what is it? And Maya's Notebook, and yeah. even Japanese Lover. Japanese They're Japanese. very different, yeah, from some of her older work. So I for sure will continue to read her work. I think for me, Long Petal of the Sea is going to be the next one. I also would like to read her nonfiction. So she has a couple of books. Paula, which is meant to be a memoir dedicated to her daughter who went into a coma and never came out. And Oof. another one, right? <laughs> this was in California. And I think her daughter was in her early 20s or somewhere around there when this happened oh. and there's my invented country uh, a memoir her a more recent memoir 
I think it's about her going back to Chile. So I'm really curious to read mm. that because I've never read any of her nonfiction. Um, yeah. So I'm very curious to see how she puts that together. And I'm also really curious to read The Infinite Plan because it mm -hmm. seems to be a story that features a man as yes. the centrality of the story, which is not something she does often. So that's, I'm really... That's in, sorry, that's interesting because I did, like, I bought that book and I started reading it. And maybe I was just expecting a female. I'm not sure, but I was kind of like, mm, I'm not ready for this. Though I am curious about it, it didn't, for some reason, it didn't seem like it fit into this assignment for some reason. Right. Yeah. And it's that we talked about earlier, that time and place. There's a yeah. time and place for each book and it's just not the time and place right now. And that's okay. So I, yeah, I'm really curious to read that one. So I, I completely understand. One last question. Of the books you read, which one would you hand off to someone who was just getting into Allende? Oh, good question. I think I'd go Japanese Lover, to be honest. Like, I did, that was probably, I, I really loved it. I absolutely loved it, but it was probably my least favorite of the three. Um, but I felt like it was a perfect starting point. Like, Maya's notebook might have been a little too heavy, you know? Like, I think it would, yeah. I think it's a good entry point. From what I, I agree. Yeah. See, for me, I'd probably recommend Island Beneath the Sea mm -hmm. as the starting point because it's just this incredible journey. And I, but I agree with you, Maya's notebook seems to be quite heavy. I, yeah. I would not recommend that as an entry point into Isabella's work. Isabella's work. Um, which book cracked you then as your favorite? Mm, probably Maya's notebook. Yeah, that, that's one that definitely gave me the most feels, brought up a lot of, you know, things from my past, things that I've worked through and was able to say like, holy crap, like I've, I went through a lot and I've done really well for myself to work through this all and to be the loving person that I am today. You are an incredibly loving person. I would never disagree with that. <laughs> um, I think um, definitely Island Beneath the Sea. Again, hmm. there are so many moments that spoke to me and it's not as though I've lived through slavery or any part of that, but there is again that other theme which we've identified in some of the other books of displacement, yeah. of moving into different countries and having to restart. And in her case, not restarting under always auspicious circumstances, but it really made me feel a great deal of emotion through Zarite's experiences. And so for me, that's definitely one of the books next to House of the Spirits that started this whole thing mm -hmm. that cracked me in this case. So I'm just going to ask you specifically a few final questions. I'm not going to answer these. So you can just as quickly as you can answer um, these as best you can. <laughs> okay. So if you're not reading, what dominates your time? Yoga and Mason. <laughs> Describe your favorite reading spot or time. Oh, good question. My favorite. Uh, hmm. You know what? Honestly, I do most of my reading um, on my elliptical. Nice. Yeah. That's the way so to go. I, yeah. 
I do um, like to read to you at, at nighttime before bed, but I usually can get through about two pages before I'm knocked out. I'm the same way. I used to be much better at reading at night before bed, but not anymore. <laughs> if you were to choose an emoji for Allende, what would it be? Mm. Ooh. I think I'd go with the Latin dancer. I feel like for, for her, for me, I feel like she exudes like empowerment and passion for an older woman because I don't think that we see that often. I think that, you know, like beauty and empowerment, passion, especially is seen for like, you know, younger women. So I love that she expresses that for older women as well. Oh, good one. I like that. Yeah. Which author is your go-to or would you recommend that we cover next? I don't think I have an author that's a go-to, to be honest. I couldn't, yeah. What podcast are you listening to these days? Mm, Cracked. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> um, musical artist that you're currently enjoying. Mm, I like a lot of musical artists. You know, oh gosh. I couldn't pick one. Honestly, I like, honestly, I would say I, I, I really love Justin Bieber. Nice. I'm not that is a, I, nope. <laughs> That's okay. I've never listened to his stuff. So I am actually now curious. Um, and final question. We are in the midst of winter, which is actually a title, I believe, of one of Isabel's books, mm. uh, which I haven't read and intend to read. However, what is your favorite winter food that brings you joy? Or dish? I would say it's called Sinigang. It's a Filipino soup. I love soup. I just, especially wintertime soup. So I would say soup, Sinigang. Oh, I love it. Now I want to taste this. I'm coming over. Okay. So thank you so much for doing this with me. I really love that discussion. I feel especially uplifted and inspired as well as completed and being able to discuss even Maya's notebook with you and understand a little bit more of where she was and reflect on that book a bit better. So thank you so much for that, as well as for revisiting that quote by Ishimi in A Japanese Lover, which I remember reading it years ago and then rereading it. And you're right, it's just all the feels. So, Isabel Allende still remains one of my top authors who I absolutely love her work. And I'm so pleased that I got to share it with you today. Thank you, Monique. Thank you, Yvonne. Okay. We'll see you on the mat. Yes. Sweet. Thanks for listening to Cracked for Readers by Readers. You can find us on Instagram at cracked underscore for RBR and email us at cracked for rbr at gmail.com. Cracked is about creating a community of readers dedicated to a deeper dive into a diversity of authors. Ultimately, our vision for this community is one predicated on kindness, inclusivity, and love. Cracked for Readers by Readers is produced with thanks to Jason McKay of JMK Audio Productions and myself, Monique Minviel. Get Cracked. <laughs>